Welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. We're so thankful that you've taken the time to join us today and want you to know that this is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is part two of episode eight in our Thessalonians Bible Study podcast. And this episode is entitled The Man of Lawlessness, where we'll continue our discussion of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, remind us what we're going to see in these verses we're looking at today. So there's just a lot of, of deep doctrine. We, uh, we got through some of it last time, and this is really about eschatology. It's about the end of the world and how to live. Um, the Thessalonians, I think, had been pushed hard by some false teaching that the end of the Lord, the day, uh, end of the world, the day of the Lord had already come hmm. and that they had missed it. Um, Paul says, hold on now. That day can't happen until you see certain things. It's similar to Jesus' teaching about the fig tree. When you see these things, you know that summer is near. When you see the fig tree acting a certain way, so it is when you see certain things happening on planet Earth, then you know the end is near. All right, the question is, how then should we live in the meantime? And so the second half of this section will be what kind of lives we should live between now and then. So we're in the middle of discussing some of the complexities of the eschatological teaching of Second Thessalonians, along with that of some other chapters in the Bible. And then we're going to apply it practically in terms of how we should be living between now and the end of the world. Well, if you haven't had a chance to do so already, I would encourage you to go back and listen to part one and then come back and join us for part two. But so that we can have a sense of where we're at, I'm going to read the entirety of chapter two in 2 Thessalonians, verses 1 through 17. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time." For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved." Therefore God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ." So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and 
word. Andy, as we move now into verses 6 and 7 in our conversation, what difficult idea does Paul introduce, and how should we understand these verses? All right, so he's been talking about the man of lawlessness, the man of sin, who will be revealed. Uh, He is called the man doomed to destruction, who will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or worship. So he sets himself up at God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. I think we rightly identify him with the Antichrist that um, John talks about in 1 John 2, where he says, "You you have heard that Antichrist is coming, and even now many Antichrists have come, and I think it's right to also identify him with the beast from the sea in Revelation 13, who basically is given power over the whole earth, to rule over the whole earth for a period of time. And so this is the individual, and Paul says, until that individual comes, Jesus isn't coming. So the day of the Lord hasn't come yet because the day of the Lord will involve at least his destruction of this man at the height of his power. Mm. He will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and, and destroy him uh, with, the, with the splendor of his coming in Revelation 19 with a sword coming out of his mouth, as it says. Um, so he can't, Jesus can't, won't come back until that individual is there to destroy So what that means is life is going to go on, just like it was in the days of Noah. There's going to be buying and selling. There's going to be marrying and giving in marriage. There's going to be the raising of children. There's going to be all these things, and they need to keep on living their lives. That'll be the second half of today's study. So there's just certain ways that we stand firm and live godly lives from now until then. In the meantime, he's still focusing on... Uh, this man of sin, this man of lawlessness. Um, And he's saying in verse 6, something is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. Hmm. And then in verse 7, the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is removed or taken out of the way. Hmm. So there's some kind of timing issue here. I mean, it's all about timing. And so why isn't he here yet? Well, there's something restraining him and holding him back. Meanwhile, there is a ferment of wickedness. There's a secret power of wickedness. The secret power implies, I think, demonic subterfuge, Mm. uh, demonic cabals that are formed at the human level, governments that rise and fall, and all kinds of stuff, this churning, undulating sea of human wickedness. Remember, the beast comes up out of the sea. So the idea is there's all this stuff going on, but there's this restraining that is happening that's holding back wickedness and holding back the the consolidation of power in one individual and you think about this idea of restraining evil something's holding it back many individuals have sought to take over the world they've sought not to be the antichrist but certainly to be the one rule one world ruler napoleon sought it hitler mm. sought it i mean just one after the other communism worldwide communism sought it something restrained them now, the thing that's mysterious about this passage is what is the restraining force and what does it mean that it's taken out of the way? Now, dispensational premillennialists say that it's the church. The church is salt and light and holds back evil and restrains evil, Christians do, as we influence society. But then comes the secret rapture. Mm. 
and Christ comes and the church is removed. And once the church is removed, then things really get bad. And then the Antichrist comes at that point because the one who restrains the secret power of evil is removed. So that's one interpretation. Another interpretation might just be the plan of God, that God restrains this. And when God's hand is removed, uh, when he pulls back the sluice gate, evil's gonna flow. And so that's more, you know, I actually don't look on those two as mutually exclusive. Right. I don't believe in the secret rapture. I think there is only one second coming of Christ. And so I don't believe the church gets removed out of the way leading to the Antichrist. I think that makes it difficult um, because 1 Thessalonians 4 says it's at the coming of Christ that the rapture happens. So I, I think at least we would say the invisible hand of God restrains human governments, restrains their demonic influence, holds them in channels and with barriers, channeling them. The king's heart is like a water course in the hands of the Lord. He directs it whatever way he chooses. And when his own hand is removed, then evil is going to flow. That's the way I read this text. Now, the text doesn't leave us to wonder what will happen once that restraining force is removed. What does verse 8 go on to tell us will happen after this restraining force is out of the way? And, and how should we be perhaps encouraged by uh, what we learn in verse 8? Well, first of all, we, we need to understand what, what is coming, uh, what the scripture reveals, especially in the book of Revelation, is and Jesus said it plainly, a time of distress unequal from the beginning of the world until now, never to be equaled again, Jesus said. It's, it's a level of destruction and carnage and suffering at every level mm. that is almost inconceivable. Jesus said, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But mm. for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, the Lord has shortened those days. The Lord has, has kept them to a very small number. And so the idea here is that once the sluice gate is removed, maybe the hand of the Lord is pulled back, it's kind of like the hedge of protection around Job is, is removed, then evil floods in. Mm. And uh, as we look at the kinds of wicked things that will happen, the power of wickedness and lawlessness will greatly increase. I don't know if this is an ac accurate harmonization, but I do try my best to accept all of the scripture and weave it into a cohesive whole. So if you look at the, um, the seven trumpet judgments, um, it seems to begin with ecological disasters, uh, such as the cursing of the ocean, so that the ocean, a third of it is turned to blood and a third of the living creatures in the ocean dies. And then, you know, a cursing on green grass and trees so that they, a third of them burn up. And you've got all of these kinds of ecological things. In Revelation 9, it implies an overt demonic infestation where there is something, some kind of stopper removed like from a subterranean bottle mm -hmm. and smoke billows up as like smoke from a furnace and then people are tormented. And the in indication is that some of the worst demons that have ever lived are allowed to, to just roam free. They're not allowed to kill people, but they are allowed to torment them so that they're begging and yearning for death. In the midst of all of this upheaval, we could imagine the level of human wickedness would be off the charts, the level of murder and rape and pillage and just the effacing of boundaries, of borders between nations, of private ownership, uh, a churning upheaval 
such that life itself would be pretty much impossible. The worst governmental condition there is, I believe, on planet Earth is anarchy, hmm. uh, where there's literally just no order, uh, where at any localized moment might makes right. The criminals are roaming the street. They'll just gun you down to take your take your shirt off your back, something like that. I would imagine the beast from the sea comes in and brings a kind of a satanic order to that chaos. And uh, he comes and orders and organizes things. And it says in verse eight, then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will destroy. So there is a revealing um, up from the sea, the churning waves of the sea comes the beast from the sea. Now, you've got to harmonize Revelation 13 with Daniel 7. Daniel's standing on the shore of the sea. He looks and he sees this undulating waves and up out of the sea come four beasts, one after the other. And the beasts represent human empires, governments. Mm -hmm. So the beast from the sea, and it's just difficult um, you know, to interpret this, but you say it's a government, but it's a man. And I think there's nothing wrong with those. Those aren't mutually exclusive because um, in Daniel chapter two, the statue represents a succession of governments from Babylon to the Medo-Persian empire to the Greeks to the Romans. But the first was the head of gold and Daniel interpreted Nebuchadnezzar as that head of gold. You, O king, are the head of gold. So an individual can have that level of autonomy, that level of power, that he just rules rules the kingdom by himself. So you could well imagine that the beast is a government led by one man. Mm -hmm. And up he comes and the nations are given under his power. Mm -hmm. And so that's what is going to be revealed, this Antichrist. But this powerful lawless one mm -hmm. uh, won't have the last word. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, you drew this out as you preached through Revelation, coming to this passage and just thinking about the power of Christ. Obviously, mm -hmm. there's more that we'll read mm -hmm. of the lawless one in verse 9 and as we continue yep. on in this passage. But talk for just a moment about mm -hmm. uh, what we can glean from this picture mm -hmm. of the Lord Jesus and his coming and what that will mean. Yeah. And, and we're following our, our usual pattern, Wes, here of going verse by verse. And so the destruction of the lawless one is revealed and then some more details of the lawless one's reign comes in in the next verse. Mm -hmm. uh, the coming of the lawless one, verse 9, will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, mm -hmm. and in every kind of evil that deceives those who are perishing. All right, And then he says, they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And for this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. And so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth, but have delighted in wickedness. So uh, that describes what life will be like before the second coming of Christ. Mm -hmm. And what life will be like will be, uh, first of all, the, the Antichrist will will uh, be established in power because of his ability to do signs and wonders. Yeah. He is the substitute Christ. Anti means in place of, not against, although he is against Christ, he is also the substitute Christ. Uh, there's a grotesque trinity in uh, Revelation 13. You've got the dragon representing Satan. You've got the beast from the sea representing the Antichrist who mimics Christ, the Son of God. And then you've got the beast from the earth who is the false prophet who points the way to the beast from the sea, mm. mimicking the Holy Spirit and his wow. Christ-honoring ministry. So you've got this grotesque evil trinity. Um, and so uh, 
they enable the Antichrist to do signs and wonders. And Jesus says that. Mm. He says that uh, they will come and perform even signs and wonders to deceive even the elect if that were possible. But the reason it's not is he says, behold, I've told you everything ahead of time. So we know it's coming. Signs and wonders, they're able to do miracles. And so maybe healings, uh, maybe other things, we don't really know. But they are a great deception. And so these people are deceived. The, the mark of the beast is mentioned there. It has to do with worship. They're on their faces worshiping the beast. Uh, they're, they're, he's the consolidation of all human religions. He'll mm. put an end to all religion but worshiping him. Christians will never yield to that. So they're running for their lives. They're hiding. They're, they're fleeing. They're trying to survive. They will not get the mark of the beast. They will not worship. They will not um, fall down and worship. It says that if you don't receive the mark of the beast, you can't buy or sell. And so you can't take part in commerce. You can't buy anything. You can't buy food. You can't sell. Nothing. So uh, that's what's going on. That's the, the evil world system mm. happening. And he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God, demanding that people worship him. And they will worship him yeah. out of fear, but also out of awe. That's what's going on. Meanwhile, I think that the Antichrist will be hunting down any who will not worship him. That would be Christians. A mass conversion of Jews who become genuine followers of Christ and also any Gentiles that are left that worship him. And uh, there'll be a population of people on earth that will not receive the mark of the beast. They will not worship and he will hunt them down mm -hmm. like the Germans did with the Gestapo, with the SS. They will hunt them down and they'll find them and they'll martyr them, mm -hmm. not all of them. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. So they're cut short, so there'll be some survivors. There'll be some people who will have faith on earth when the Son of Man comes. Um, and so they will be crying out for deliverance. They will be, I think in Daniel chapter 12, counting the days mm. um, until the end of the world. They will be waiting for Christ to come, and he will come. And he will come to rescue his people. He'll come to rescue his bride. Um, and he will defend and protect them. And so look what it says. Um, the, um, the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. So what I get out of that, now in Revelation 19, the images of Christ riding on a, uh, on a uh, charger for war, a horse, and leading the armies of heaven and he fights against the antichrist with the sword coming out of his mouth. This is all metaphor, I think here. Here it just simply says with the breath of his mouth. So what's going on? Well, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made. By the breath of his, his mouth were the was the earth created, something like that. That's in the Psalms. So by his word, by his breath, he creates. We've seen in Jesus, and I've talked about this a lot recently with uh, the Gospel of Mark, mm. his effortless power. Jesus does not display any effort or any struggle in healing people. It's not difficult for him to drive out demons. Mm. The stilling of the storm was with a word, peace be still. So how perfect is it for Jesus to come back and with no effort whatsoever slay the Antichrist, his enemy, hmm. the breath of his mouth, like Martin Luther in, in A Mighty Fortress, one little word will slay him or fell him. All right. So he just comes and effectively says, be dead. <laughs> Done. Wow. And in him, we live and move and have our being. Hmm. In, in him, Satan lives and moves and has his being. He is the ground of existence. Hmm. And when he decides you don't 
continue to live, you don't live anymore. So what is the army there for? We're just witnesses. <laughs> he doesn't need us at all. He doesn't need the angels. So he comes back and he is radiantly glorious. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his Father's glory with all the angels. So it's brilliant light, like a fireball, like a supernova he comes. And it's just blinding and he just says, be dead. And he's dead. Yeah. It's amazing. So for all of the satanic power behind this lawless one, for all of the strength of the, the delusion and those who will believe and run after that, there's this power and glory on display in the coming of Christ that will put an end yeah. to that wickedness. In an instant. And, and we see foretastes of that because the demons are always terrified of Jesus. They know who's in charge. Hmm. They know his power. Hmm. Uh, even they underestimate his power. Jesus', Jesus power is limitless. Yeah. We're talking about omnipotence, limitless power. What does that mean? It means any creature with limited or finite power is as nothing compared to him. Hmm. And so, yeah, I think for us to realize all the churning and undulation of the wicked governments that rise and fall, it's all in God's hand yeah. and everything's going according to his purpose. Well, Andy, I want to make sure that we have time to discuss verses 13 through 17, sure. but anything more that we need to say yeah. before we move on here from, from verse yeah, 12? Yeah, I mean, we, we went over it quickly, but let's look at the verses of, of what happens to those that are deceived. It says they perish because they refuse to love the truth mm. and so be saved. So we're talking about unbelievers. And the ultimate you know, display of that is at the end of the world, but it's going on right now. Think about people we witness to, people we're sharing our, our, our faith with, people who are family members, neighbors, co-workers. And they're perishing because they refuse to love the truth. Mm. Many of them know the truth. Some of them don't. But many of them do know the truth and they don't love it. They don't love it. They refuse to love the truth. I think about even people that have been you know, close to me in my life that were not Christians. And they loved me. They loved my family. But they didn't love Christ. They mm. didn't love the truth. They refused to love the truth and so be saved. And so therefore they're dead in their transgressions and sins. And, and God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. It's similar to, to the lying spirit sent out in all the false prophets. Remember that heavenly vision mm. that, the, that the true prophet had, uh, Micaiah, I think, uh, son of Imla, who's told the truth. And he said to Ahab, I think, and, and Jehoshaphat, King Ahab, he said, uh, basically, if you go out to battle, you're going to die. And all Israel will go home without a, without a shepherd for the sheep. I saw all of Israel scattered like a sheep without a shepherd. So he's like, I told you, he always says bad all things about me. Bad always things. This is why I don't yeah. ask this guy. And he said, let me tell you what's going on here. Uh, the Lord has sent, uh, you know, a spirit into the mouths of all the false prophets and they're, they're leading you to your death. Mm. And what's interesting is, he tells him ahead of time. He could have said, wow, I think you're right. I'm not going to do it then. No, no, no. He puts him in prison. Well, what Jesus, is, what the Lord is doing here is he's saying the same thing here. Mm -hmm. I want you all to know, planet Earth, it's in the Bibles up on your shelf. It's yeah. available. Yeah. I'm telling you ahead of time what's going to happen. God is going to send a powerful delusion. Mm -hmm. And it's a lie. But you know what? You're going to believe it. And so in that way, they're going to perish and they're going to be condemned. Those who have not believed the truth, listen to what they did delight. They didn't love the truth, but they delighted in wickedness. So I think those verses, uh, verse 11 and 12, 10, 11, 12, really open up the heart of rebellion and unbelief going on right now, but it will reach a crescendo uh, right before the second coming of Christ. Now, how does Paul contrast the ones who will be drawn into that deception of the lawless one with the Thessalonian Christians in verse 13? Yeah, I think he starts with the word but. <laughs> so it's <laughs> right. like, but in your case, you know, we have better things. Better. 
Yes. Yeah, better things in mind. So thank God for the but. Thank mm. thank God, just like Ephesians 2, but God, because of his great love for us. God stepped in. It could mm. have been us. We could have uh, believed the delusion as well. But we ought always to thank God for you. So he gives God the credit that they're not included. To God be the glory that you're not going to be destroyed at the second coming of Christ. So he gives him all the credit. Uh, and, and why? Because it's foundational to this is the love of the Lord set on you mm-hmm. before the foundation of the world. The Lord loved you. As it says in Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, in loving kindness, I have drawn you. So he sets his love on the elect first and then he works salvation for them. So we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning of his plans, from the beginning of, from before the beginning of the world, God chose you to be saved. He's saying, so we praise God for his saving work. Absolutely. And what more can we learn about God's sovereignty and his purposes ultimately in salvation from what we just began to discuss in the end of 13 and even on into verse 14? Well, he saved you, he says, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit through belief in the truth. Hmm. So there's lots of these phrases in Paul's epistles, you know, um, for the obedience of faith, sometimes obedience comes in. And in this case, he zeroes in on the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Peter talks about that as well, that that we're sanctified by the Spirit. And I think in this case, sanctified could either mean set apart unto God as his prized and holy possession, or a transforming uh, work of sanctification, of holiness, worked in the mind and, and hearts and the lives of the people. The, the Spirit sanctifies them and makes them holy. It's hard to choose because both of them are true. I think the sequences, first, were set apart unto God as his prized possession. And then secondly, there's a work done on us, making us more and more like Christ. Sanctification mm-hmm. done by the Spirit through belief in the truth. Now, what's that word through mean? Well, we are sanctified by the truth. Your word is truth, John 17. So we're set apart by the word of God and then we're transformed by faith in the word of God. So as we believe the truth, we are increasingly transformed. So this is how what Paul says very plainly in Galatians, having begun by the spirit, we're not now perfected by the flesh. And so the same way we begin the Christian life, which Mm. is faith comes through hearing the word, we make progress in sanctification and holiness by hearing and obeying the the word. So we see that pattern here. Uh, God shows you to be saved, how? Through the sanctifying work of the spirit and through belief in the truth. So we're justified by faith in Christ and then we're sanctified also through faith in Christ. And he even says that at the beginning of verse 14, to this he called you through our gospel. So what was proclaimed to you, you believed and heard. And then he ends verse 14, Mm. so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's he talking about here and what aspect of our salvation does he have in mind? We will be glorious. The righteous are going to shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father, Mark, Mm. uh, Matthew 13. And so we're going to shine, 1343, we're going to shine with radiance. So um, glory is the radiant display of the attributes of God. We're going to put God on display for all eternity. Now, you know, I've written a book on heaven, and I'm saying that a lot of that is the backward look on what God did in and through us all, 
all of the elect in every generation, how God sovereignly worked to save us and then how he sovereignly worked to use us and our good works woven together uh, and used for his glory. And God is gonna shine, shine, shine in every era of church history by review, we will look back and see the radiant display of the greatness of God. So we are going to share in the glory of Christ and of God. We're going to shine. And the glory will be God's through Christ. That's, you know, there's no, there's no need for the light of the sun or light of the lamp to shine for the Lord. God will be their light and the lamb will be his lamp. We're going to shine with the light of Christ. So it says it plainly here. Um, that in verse uh, 14, so that we might share in or partake, be partakers in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So beautiful. I love the imagery of, of living stones, or you might think of mm -hmm. a gemstone, or even perhaps a prism with just pure, unadulterated light shining through it, mm -hmm. and that just putting on display the yeah. beauty of the light, refracting I, it, reflecting what, it. And I just, I just can't help now, <laughs> as we as, as you're saying this, refracting, shining the glory, mm -hmm. to go to Daniel 12 and just read that because it's so, it just resonates. Yeah. Um, it says uh, in 12.3, those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and mm. ever. Isn't that beautiful? I love that. So that fits perfectly. That's so good. Now, verses 15 through the end are really a charge and then a uh, doxology, mm -hmm. uh, if you will, at the end of this passage. Why does Paul charge them the way he does in verse 15? And then yeah. how does that flow into the doxology and his conclusion yeah. of this section? Great questions, Wes. Great questions. So first of all, stand firm. Hold on to mm -hmm. the teachings uh, that we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or letter. I mean, the time of word of mouth is over. It's only by letter now. It's only by the written word. But back then, it was a dynamic process whereby apostles and prophets were developing the New Testament teachings. So a bunch of doctrines were flowing into these church plants. Okay, He had taught them by word of mouth, and then he had to leave. Now he's writing them. Second Thessalonians, already written First Thessalonians. And there are other epistles out there that have been copied. Maybe at some point they had access to Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, who knows. But whatever, hold firm, hold fast to the teachings. Mm -hmm. And the way we do that is by reading them. We read the scriptures. Uh, we believe that they're true. We take them as the actual word of God mm -hmm. spoken to us. We then put them into practice by the power of the Spirit. We hold firm to the teachings uh, that has been passed on to us. We hold firm to the word of God. So that's our exhortation. We're exhorted to stand firm and hold on. Standing firm implies forces coming at us, moving us off the foundation. Mm -hmm pushing on us away, but we're not going to do that. We're going to stand firm like the house built on rock. We're not going to get knocked down by the winds and the waves and all that. We're going to stand firm. Mm -hmm. And then he says in this beautiful doxology, and this is more of a prayer, may God do things in your life. Mm -hmm. That's what these doxologies work like. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and may God our Father. And then he uses extra phrases in here that confuse you. So don't don't be confused, but let's just uh, take the extra phrase out and just say, what does he want God to do? May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Mm -hmm. So your heart is encouraged, you're filled with good hope, yeah. and then you're energized to go do every good deed and word. Yeah. And those good deeds and those good words are essential to building the, the church. They're essential to evangelizing the lost and building up those who have been 
been found in Christ. The words and deeds of the church build up the church as each part does its work. So may God give you an encouraged heart and energize you in all the good works he has to do. Now that extra clause he put in there, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. So in other words, he's all about that. He loved us from before the foundation of the world. He gave us through grace eternal encouragement. We're forever encouraged. We're buoyant. We're, you know, sorrowful. Yes, but always rejoicing. There's this buoyant energy here Mm. and a good hope. That means we continue to think that the future is bright based on the promises of God. It's a solid hope and hope does not disappoint. So we're not going to be disappointed. This is the God who he's appealing to in prayer. May this God who wants you to be encouraged and filled with hope Hmm. encourage your hearts. May he who is the limitless supply of delicious drinking water give you some water to drink right now so that you'll be refreshed and strengthened so you can go out and get busy for the kingdom. Mm. That's what he's saying. Yeah, it's an incredible picture and a phenomenal way to end this section after having thought about all of the things that they'll face, that they'll be opposed by and assaulted mm-hmm. by, but remembering this Christ, yeah. their hope, yeah. uh, the one who can comfort and establish them. Any final thoughts sure. on this chapter, Andy, as we uh, conclude our time yeah. today? I just, as I was just doing that, I was so energized by these words. They're so exciting to me. I mm. just can't help but think that they're meant for us right here, right now. Yes. May we be encouraged by good hope. May we not be downcast or depressed or discouraged by our own sin. God's grace is greater than our sin by our own weakness and laziness and Mm. frustration. Mm. God can overcome all that. He's been using weak people like us to build Mm. the kingdom. So we need to get busy. Say, God, what would you have me do? How can I share the gospel with someone today? How can I use my gifts to build up the church? So I guess what I would say, dear listener, is get active and energetic, filled with good hope, knowing that God's got the future in his hand all figured out. Despite the powerful forces of Satan in this world, God's more powerful still still. And we have a work to do, so let's do it. Thanks, Andy, so much for your time today. And thank you for listening. Uh, This has been episode eight in our Thessalonians Bible Study podcast. We invite you to join us next time for episode nine, where we'll discuss 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 1 through 18. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.